we are concluding a short three-week series uh, called Decision Points. Those moments in your life, right, where, where sometimes you realize, and sometimes you don't even realize you're at a decision point, you look back and see it, but those moments where you have to make a big choice about how you're going to go forward. Should I stay or should I go? Who sang that song? Does anybody remember? I was writing this. I'm going, should I stay or should? The Clash. Uh, maybe next Sunday we'll have a little Clash moment. But anyway, um, should I stay or should I go? Should I be an engineer or major in business? Should I start a business or quit the job? Should I ask her out or should I just be quiet? Should I take the relationship to the next level or should I end this relationship? Should I make the call, take the chemo, pay the price, go for broke or just not? And so today in honor of Father's Day, I want to wrap up the series with some thoughts, not just on Jesus, but we are going to be talking about the decision points regarding Jesus Christ because here's the truth. As he has described himself, he is the eternal stumbling block. He is the eternal decision point. He represents the ultimate point in eternity for humanity. He is a, the thing upon which all of humanity hangs. There is no avoiding a decision about Jesus. And so in preparation for next week, kind of our defining annual moment for decisions. If you've been around, men, can I just say... We don't do a lot of altar calls. If you're familiar with churches, a lot of times they'll have altar calls. They'll ask people to come forward and make a public commitment to Christ. I think that's a good thing. We do them now and then, but not often. Um, most of the time it's because people that are making that decision, I really want you to, I don't want to uh, make, make it an emotional thing for you. I want you to make a, a well-thought-out decision to follow Jesus Christ. And so I, I want you to come and listen and wrestle with God in our community. And then I want you to come to a very real place where you go, I'm driving a stake down and I'm making a decision for Christ. And that's what, that's what our baptism service is about next week. So I don't know where you are on that. If you've been hanging around the church and, and you've been coming for a year or two and you've been thinking about making a commitment to Jesus, I hope that you will do that next week. If you would say, I'm a believer and I have made a decision to follow Jesus, but I just haven't been baptized and I don't really need to be baptized. Well, you don't need to be, but Jesus said you should be. So, I think you should. Um, and I know sometimes for those of us that have been around the church for a long time, we're like, well, I'm going to look kind of silly. I've been going to church for like 20 years and I never got baptized. Okay, well, I did that. So you could do that. Um, and maybe those of you that, have, uh, that were baptized as a child or, and you've come as a, to, to faith as a, an adult, maybe this is the moment where you honor what your parents did as a child, but you also take a, take a step of faith and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus Make this adult decision, this public declaration. Or maybe you've, maybe you've slid backwards a little bit, and, and now is the time to come forward and recommit your life. We're going to be talking about decision points with da with, with, about Jesus, but for, for in the beginning of the talk, I want to talk about dads. Last week, we looked at a couple famous decision points in the scriptures, the last couple of weeks. Two encounters with potential followers of Jesus. One who came and, and followed, and one who walked away. But today, today I, want to, I want to look at couple of other famous ones that we blow by in scripture. And because it's a different day, it's Father's Day, we want to have a little bit of fun. I want to take a different approach setting the table for this last encounter, this last decision point encounter. And so to do that, we're going to have a little uh, fun. We're going to watch a little video together that I think is kind of funny and very truthful. If you ever meet somebody that's brilliant and they can take very complex things and make them simple, that's what you're going to see today. And it's not me. Um, so don't laugh at that. Uh, is there any procrastinators out there? Right? I mean, if you're a procrastinator, um, you know, Mark Twain, who was a self-described procrastinator, he has this great quote, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. I have a major, I'm telling you, I have a serious procrastination problem. The older I get, the worse it is. This is why I get up at 3.45 every Sunday morning. I mean, I could finish everything, but I don't. I got to get up because I, and, and so we're going to talk about that and all the rest. But raise your, okay, raise your hand if you would say, I'm a procrastinator. Raise your hand. Keep them up. Ooh, this service is loaded with procrastinators. Now keep them up. Raise your hand if you're married or in a relationship with a procrastinator. <laughs> See, so this time... <laughs> This touches almost everybody. And now, here's what the, here's what the science shows. About 20% of us are what they call chronic procrastinators. All right? Let me give you an example of a chronic procrastinator. Uh, many of you know I'm going to Guatemala with one of the teams in a few weeks. My friend Betsy all sent me an email yesterday and said, I know this is a silly question to ask, but have you booked your flight to Guatemala? 
And my response was, Betsy, I'm not leaving for three weeks. Why would I have booked a flight to Guatemala now? Now, if my wife, if and when she's come with me to Guatemala, my wife begins to pack about a month before Guatemala. You know, she puts the bag out, puts some stuff in it along the way. Do you know when I pack for Guatemala? Two hours before the plane leaves, I'm running around packing for Guatemala. And so this is a real struggle in my life. And a friend I know knew it was a struggle in my life. And uh, he said, I got, I got to show you this video because this guy got in your head. And I'm telling you, man, if you want to understand what makes me work, and I think what makes some of you guys work, enjoy it. And we're going to watch this for a few minutes now, and then we're going to come back and talk about it and relate it to, to the things of Christ. But there's truth. All truth is God's truth. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to watch this TED Talk. I don't know if you've ever seen a TED Talk. I won't get into what they are. But they basically bring brilliant people from around the world to give short talks on, on different topics. And this is a TED Talk uh, on the mind, the mastermind of a procrastinator. So enjoy it on Father's Day. Uh, we'll pick it up together in a few minutes. So in college, I was a government major, which means I had to write a lot of papers. Now, when a normal student writes a paper, they might spread the work out a little like this. So, you know, you get started maybe a little slowly, but you get enough done in the first week that with some heavier days later on, everything gets done and things stay civil. And I would want to do that like that. That would be the plan. I would, uh, I would have it all ready to go, but then, then, then actually the paper would, would come along and then I would kind of do this. And that would happen every single paper. But then came my 90-page senior thesis, a paper you're supposed to spend a year on. And I knew for a paper like that, my normal workflow was not an option. It was way too big a project. So I planned things out, and I decided it kind of had to go something like this. This is how the year would go. So I'd start off light, and I'd bump it up in the middle months. And then at the end, I would kick it up into high gear. It's just like a little staircase. How hard could it be? Just walk up the stairs. No big deal, right? But then, funniest thing happened. Those first few months, they came and went, and I, I couldn't quite do stuff. So we had an awesome new revised plan. And then... But then those middle months actually went by, and I didn't really write words. And so we were here. And then two months turned into one month, which turned into two weeks. And one day I woke up with three days until the deadline, <laughs> still not having written a word, and so I did the only thing I could. I wrote 90 pages over 72 hours, pulling not one but two all-nighters. Humans are not supposed to pull two all-nighters. Sprinted across campus, dove in slow motion, and got it in just at the deadline. I thought that was the end of everything. But a week later, I get a call, and it's the school. And they say, is this Tim Urban? And I say, yeah. And they say, we need to talk about your thesis. And I say, okay. And they say, it's the best one we've ever seen. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> it was a very, very bad thesis. I just wanted to enjoy that one moment when all of you thought, this guy is amazing. <laughs> no, no, it was very, very bad. Anyway, today I'm a writer, blogger, guy. I write the blog, Wait But Why? And a couple years ago, I decided to write about procrastination. My behavior has always perplexed the non-procrastinators around me, and I wanted to explain to the non-procrastinators of the world what goes on in the heads of procrastinators and why we are the way we are? Now, I had a hypothesis that the brains of procrastinators were actually different than the brains of other people. And to test this, I found an MRI lab that actually let me scan both my brain and the brain of a proven non-procrastinator, and, and so I could compare them. And I actually brought them here to show you today, and I want you to take a look carefully to see if you can notice a difference. And I know that if you're not a trained brain expert, it's not that obvious, but just take a look, okay? So here's the brain of a non-procrastinator. <laughs> now, here's my brain. <laughs> I 
there is a difference. Both brains have a rational decision maker in them, but the procrastinator's brain also has an instant gratification monkey. Now, what does this mean for the procrastinator? Well, it means everything's fine until this happens. So the rational decision maker will make the rational decision to do something productive, but the monkey doesn't like that plan. So he actually takes the wheel and he says, "Actually, let's read the entire Wikipedia page of the Nancy Kerrigan Tanya Harding scandal because I just remember that that happened." <laughs> then, then we're going to go over to the fridge. We're going to see if there's anything new in there since 10 minutes ago. After that. We're going to go on a YouTube spiral that starts with videos of Richard Feynman talking about magnets and ends much, much later with us watching interviews with Justin Bieber's mom. <laughs> All of that's going to take a while, so we're not going to really have room on the schedule for any work today. Sorry. <sighs> Now, what is going on here? The instant gratification monkey does not seem like a guy you want behind the wheel. He lives entirely in the present moment. He has no memory of the past, no knowledge of the future, and he only cares about two things: easy and fun. Now, in the animal world, that works fine. If you're a dog and you spend your whole life doing nothing other than easy and fun things, you're a huge success. <laughs> and to the monkey. Humans are just another animal species. He has to keep well slept, well fed, and propagating into the next generation, which in tribal times might have worked okay. But if you haven't noticed, now we're not in tribal times. We're in an advanced civilization, and the monkey does not know what that is. Which is why we have another guy in our brain, the rational decision maker, who gives us the ability to do things no other animal can do. We can visualize the future. We can see the big picture. We can make long-term plans, and he wants to take all of that into account, and he wants to just have us do whatever makes sense to be doing right now. Now, sometimes it makes sense to be doing things that are easy and fun, like when you're having dinner or going to bed or enjoying well-earned leisure time. That's why there's an overlap. Sometimes they agree, but other times it makes much more sense to be doing things that are harder and less pleasant for the sake of the big picture, and that's when we have a conflict. And for the procrastinator, that conflict tends to end a certain way every time, leaving him spending a lot of time in this orange zone—an easy and fun place that's entirely out of the make sense circle. I call it the dark playground. <laughs> Now, the dark playground is a place that all of you procrastinators out there know very well. It's where leisure activities happen at times when leisure activities are not supposed to be happening. The fun you have in the dark playground isn't actually fun because it's completely unearned, and the air is filled with guilt, dread, anxiety, self-hatred—all those good procrastinator feelings. And the question is: In this situation, with the monkey behind the wheel, how does the procrastinator ever get himself over here to this blue zone—a less pleasant place, but where really important things happen? Well, it turns out that the procrastinator has a guardian angel, someone who's always looking down on him and watching over him. In his darkest moments, someone called the Panic Monster. <laughs> Now, the Panic Monster is dormant most of the time, but he suddenly wakes up any time a deadline gets too close, or there's danger of public embarrassment, a career disaster, or some other scary consequence. And importantly, he's the only thing that the monkey is terrified of. Now, he became very relevant in my life. Pretty recently, because the people of TED reached out to me about six months ago and invited me to do a TED talk. <laughs> Now, of course, I said yes. It's always been a dream of mine to have done a TED talk in the past. But in the middle of all this excitement, the rational decision maker seemed to have something else in his mind. He was saying, "Are we clear on what we just accepted? Do we do we get what's going to be now happening one day in the future? We need to sit down and work on this right now." And the monkey said, "Totally agree, but also let's just open Google Earth and let's zoom into the bottom of India, like 200 feet above the ground, and we're going to scroll up for two and a half hours till we get to the top of the country, so we can get a better feel for India."
So that's what we did that day. As six months turned into four, and then two, and then one, the people of TED decided to release the speakers. And I opened up the website, and there was my face staring right back at me. And guess who woke up? <laughs> so the panic monster starts losing his mind, and a few seconds later, the whole system's in mayhem. And the monkey, who remember, he's terrified of the panic monster. Boom! He's up the tree, and finally, finally, the rational decision maker can take the wheel, and I can start working on the talk. Now, the panic monster explains all kinds of pretty insane procrastinated behavior, like how someone like me could spend two weeks unable to start the opening sentence of a paper, and then miraculously find the unbelievable work ethic to stay up all night and write eight pages. And this entire situation with the three characters—this is the procrastinator's system. It's not pretty, but in the end, it works. And this is what I decided to write about on the blog just a couple years ago. Now, when I did, I was amazed by the response. Literally, thousands of emails came in from all different kinds of people from all over the world, doing all different kinds of things. These were people who were nurses and bankers and painters and engineers and lots and lots of PhD students. And they were all writing, saying the same thing: "I have this problem too." But what struck me was the contrast between the light tone of the post and the heaviness of these emails. These people were writing with intense frustration about what procrastination had done to their lives, about what this monkey had done to them. And I thought about this, and I said, well, "If the procrastinator system works, then what's going on? Why are all these people in such a dark place?" Well. Turns out that there's two kinds of procrastination. Everything I've talked about today, the examples I've given, they all have deadlines. And when there's deadlines, the effects of procrastination are contained to the short term because the panic monster gets involved. But there's a second kind of procrastination that happens in situations when there is no deadline. So, if you want to have a career where you want to be a self-starter, something in the arts, something entrepreneurial. There's no deadlines on those things at first, because nothing's happening at first. Not until you've gone out and done the hard work to get some momentum to get things going. There's also all kinds of important things outside of your career that don't involve any deadlines, like seeing your family or exercising and taking care of your health, working on your relationship, or getting out of a relationship that isn't working. Now, if the procrastinator's only mechanism. Of doing these hard things is the panic monster. That's a problem because in all of these non-deadline situations, the panic monster doesn't show up. He has nothing to wake up for. So the effects of procrastination—they're not contained. They just extend outward forever. And it's this long-term kind of procrastination that's much less visible and much less talked about than the funnier short-term deadline-based kind. It's usually suffered quietly and privately. And it can be the source of a huge amount of long-term unhappiness and regrets. And I thought, you know, that's why these people are emailing, and that's why they're in such a bad place. It's not that they're cramming for some project; it's that long-term procrastination has made them feel like a spectator at times in their own lives. You know, the frustration was not that they couldn't achieve their dreams; it's that they weren't even able to start chasing them. So, I read these emails, and I had a little bit of an epiphany. That I don't think non-procrastinators exist. That's right. I think all of you are procrastinators. Now you might not all be a mess, like some of us, and some of you may have a healthy relationship with deadlines. But remember, the monkey's sneakiest trick is when the deadlines aren't there. Now I want to show you one last thing. I call this a life calendar. That's one box for every week. Of a 90-year life, that's not that many boxes, especially since we've already used a bunch of those. So I think we need to all take a long, hard look at that calendar, and we need to think about what we're really procrastinating on, because everyone is procrastinating on something in life. We need to stay aware of the instant gratification monkey. That's a job for all of us. And because there's not that many boxes on there, it's a job that should probably start today. Well, maybe not today, but <laughs> you know, sometime soon. Thank you.
first time I saw that, I'm like, holy smokes, that's exactly like, you know, see, I get up at 345, but then, you know, there's a lot of things I can do before 345, before the panic monster comes on Sunday morning, because I've got to get up in front of everybody, and, and so I'm reading it, and I don't know if you caught what he said at the end, though, here's the brilliance of this, okay, and, and this is the scriptural truth. It's this long-term kind of procrastination that is much less visible and much less talked about than the funnier short-term deadline-based kind, usually suffered quietly and privately. And it can be a source of huge amounts of long-term unhappiness and regrets. Long-term procrastination makes them feel like a spectator at times in their own lives. And the frustration is not that they were unable to achieve their dreams so much as they were never able to start chasing them. Brilliant. I mean, he nailed me. See, my, get, my sermon gets done. It gets done pretty well. My taxes get done on October 15th, because I extend on April 15th. Why do, you know, in April what you could do in October? My bills get paid. When Comcast shuts off the cable, I pay them. <laughs> but what about the things that really matter, that there isn't a deadline attached to? when there's no panic monkey that's going to show up and say, you better get this done. Things like my relationship with my kids. Things like my relationship with my dad. What happens when all of my best intentions, all the things I'm going to do, vanish into the abyss of time gone by and become nothing? Because I was never forced to make a decision. So here's a premise I, I, I was thinking about wrestling with this week. And I think I can back this up biblically. The greatest danger to you making good, wise, and right choices is just choosing, is, is not, is, excuse me, the biggest danger is choosing not to make a decision at all. To just put it off and wait till tomorrow. The Bible is a, is a book called Galatians, and it has a real familiar verse in it. Um, you might have heard it before. Your parents might have told you it to you. It says, do not be fooled. A man reaps what he sows. There's a, a famous saying that's kind of grown up uh, attached to that over time, which says, if, quote, and when, quote, if and whens, ifs and whens were planted and nothing grew. If and when was planted and nothing grew. See, if I get time tomorrow, I mean, I'm busy today, but if I get time tomorrow, I'm going to give my dad a call and say happy Father's Day. I mean, when I get this done, when I get done with church, then I'm going to go home and spend some time with the kids. See, if my dad, if he would just apologize for all the things he did when I was a kid, then I would work on our relationship. And you see, when my kids, when they get a little bit older, then I'm going to teach them about Jesus. My son, if my son would just respect me, then I might listen to what he says. And when my daughter dresses the way I want her to, then I'm going to make sure she knows how proud I am of her. You see, if... If I get another week's vacation, then I'm going to go see my dad. And when I get another promotion, then I'm going to be able to leave work a little earlier and spend time at home with my kids. Ifs and whens were planted, and nothing grew. So fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, hear me on this. If and when will never come. If you walk out of here, if you get one thing, I want you to understand this, and the Bible calls us to understand this, if and when will never come. The greatest threat you face as a dad this Father's Day is not making bad decisions regarding your children. It's that you make no decisions regarding your children. Because time is so short for you to be a dad, at least in those formative years, and your sons and daughters will be gone, and all that I'm telling you this, I'm speaking to you on... I'm speaking you, to most of you on, on the other side of this. All that's going to be left, all that's going to be left is the remains of your best intentions and bad regrets. Because long-term procrastination makes them feel like a spectator at times in their own lives. The frustration is not that they were able to, uh, unable to achieve their dreams so much as they were never able to start chasing them. I love the New York Mets. Some of you guys know I love the New York Mets. And most of us as New York Mets fans, there's something that, that we're even more passionate about than the Mets. Do you know what it is? Hating the Yankees. <laughs> I hate the New York Yankees. I perceive them to be evil. Right? I mean, I, if the Mets, a good night for me is if the Mets have the game won, I could flip over to the Yankees and hope they lose. That's like the doubleheader thing for me. And so I have to tell you, 
as much as I hate the Yankees, I have to give it to them because they've got a lot of history, the house that Ruth built, the whole thing, right? I get it. The yeah, yeah, I know. Don't email me about your rings. I get it. All the rings and all the rest, Monument Park. and So I always said, I'm going to take my kids. I, I raised my boys to love baseball. I'm going to take my boys to Yankee Stadium so they can see the real Yankee Stadium, the, you know, the original house that Ruth built. And listen, I want you to know, I was going to take them next year. I was going to take them. I really was. I was going to take them next year. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's October. And then I was going to take them the next year. And then they knocked it down. I See, I, I want you to understand. This, this has eaten at me. This is a stupid story, okay? It's about the Yankees. But I really wanted to do this. Hear this now. I really wanted to do this. But I wanted to do it tomorrow. And now it's gone. And these things seem funny or trivial until they're not. See, I really wanted to do family devotions with my kids. I really did. I had this thing in my mind where there'd be candles and quiet and hand-holding. And, and so I remember when they were little and I would, I would read with them in bed. I said, I, I can't wait till they get a little older. Because right now they're too little to do these devotions. It wouldn't be, make a lot of sense. I'm going to wait till they get a little bit older and then we'll do them. And then the older two got a little bit older, and then I had two younger ones come along, and I thought to myself, well, this doesn't make much sense now, because if I do these devotions now, only John and Courtney are going to understand them, and Caleb and Caroline, they're not really going to understand. So I'm just going to wait a little bit longer until Caleb and Caroline are ready, and then they can understand them. And Courtney's now 23. And I missed it. Because I was going to do it tomorrow. This is why the Bible says, it teaches at the beginning of wisdom, and it's phrased as a prayer, God teaches to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. I was thinking about this this week. I'm driving to work. I talk to God a lot when I'm driving to work. Some of the staff knows this too because I, I was wrestling with this thing. I'm, I'm going, God, I think that, I think that what I, I'm experiencing to be true and what your word says is that the biggest danger in regards to a decision point is that you don't make a decision at all. You just put it off. And I said, I know this is something you don't hear about a lot. And I said, maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm going to show this video in church. And I know that's a little weird to show a video in church. And I, Do you want me to talk about this, God? And, you know, this is the way God and I talk and I'm thinking about that. And I swear to you, I walk into the office and there's somebody waiting to talk to me. And the first person I talked to said, I need to let you know my brother died this week. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And tell me about your relationship with your brother. And he said, well, it was not a good one. It was, it was strained. We had, we had kind of reconciled a few years ago. But over the last bunch of weeks now, I hadn't talked to him in a little while, and, and my wife said to me every day, she said, call your brother. You should call your brother. You really should call your brother. And I didn't know he was sick, and I always thought that there was going to be a tomorrow, and then literally just said, I always thought there was going to be a tomorrow until there's no more tomorrows. And he said, I have to go home today and call my brother's wife and apologize because I always thought there was going to be a tomorrow until there was no more tomorrows. And so... First off, men, on Father's Day, from one dad to another, from one who had four and only has one kind of left, they're all over 18. I was driving with Caroline this week, and I said, Caroline, I just want to let you know, I said, I'm so excited that in some sense the other kids are leaving, it's just going to be you and me, Carrie, because I love you, and I'm going to pour into you over these four years. And we had a good moment in the car because, I mean, I did a good job as a dad. I did, I did a decent job, but i got to tell you, I could have done much better. I could have done better. Man, count the days right. Do what you have to do. Change the schedule. Live with less. Find a different job. Go to work earlier so you can leave sooner. Go read the book in bed with them. Go camp in the backyard. Buy the trampoline. Buy the trampoline and jump on it with them. I mean, I had all these good intentions. Do you know? I, I just desired. I so much. I wanted to build my kids a treehouse. Anybody ever build their kids a treehouse? I wanted a treehouse. I wanted to build my kids a treehouse. So I bought all these books on treehouse building. Right? <laughs> now, if you know me. This would not be a good idea, but nonetheless, I really wanted to build them a treehouse. And so if you come to my house today, if, we have, if you joined Starting Point in the fall, you can come to my house. And the, We have a magazine rack. Does anybody have a magazine? Who's the last time somebody got a magazine? And you could tell because it's in that rack, actually, if you come to my house. And we have this magazine rack, and in the magazine rack, you know what's in there? A bunch of books on building a treehouse. I really wanted to build a treehouse. I really did want to build a treehouse. And so, I just want to encourage you dads. You, I don't know what it is. I don't know, I don't know what it is that you're putting off. But the scripture teaches that 
Today is the day you need to do that. You need to count the days right. Your kids are going to be gone, gone, gone. Now you can come borrow my treehouse book. And for Father's Day, I also want to just encourage you, those of you whose dads are still around, those of you that are lucky enough and blessed enough, I am, to still have a dad around, I want to encourage you, don't wait till tomorrow. I know it's Father's Day and sometimes, oh, I'll call my dad tomorrow. Make the call, go to the house, write the card, send the letter. Many of you know the story of my friend Mike. We talked about something like this a few years ago in church, and we were talking about being a reconciler. The Bible calls us to be the agents that go. And Mike had a strained relationship with his stepdad. His stepdad was a hard man, a cold man. His stepdad had kind, of, had kind of ushered him out of his, his mom's life and out of the house. And there was a lot of strain and pain there. And, and Mike took call, the serious the call of Christ to be a reconciler and hadn't spoken to his dad in a year. So he wrote his dad a letter. So I'm going to sit down and write my dad a letter. And he wrote his dad a letter and uh, hadn't talked to him in years. And the, the house phone rang a few weeks later. It was his stepdad. His stepdad said, man, I mean, I got this letter. I just wanted to thank you for writing it. And Mike and his dad talked a few times over the next, you know, bunch of months, maybe a year, year and a half, something like that. And one night Mike got a call, and it was from the police down in South Jersey, I think. And uh, they said, is your name Mike? And he said, yeah. And he said, uh, we're sorry to inform you that your father uh, passed away. Mike said, well, what happened? They said, well, he, he committed suicide. And... Uh, they said, listen, we, we're going to call you back. We're in the middle of processing the scene, but uh, we just wanted to inform you and let you know. And Mike called me, and we talked about it, and we prayed about it a little bit. And um, he's, he didn't have a lot of details. And uh, so, so the police called him back a little while later, and they said, Mike said, well, you know, I, my dad and I didn't have a, a really close relationship. And Mike knew he kind of lived in like a flop house out and down in South Jersey. He goes, how did you know? How did you get my name? How did you get my number? And he said, oh, the letter you wrote him. And he said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, that letter you wrote him, he slept with it under his pillow. Because you see, there's always tomorrow. Until there's no more tomorrows. And so, if that's important when it comes to raising our kids and dealing with our dads, as we move towards next Sunday morning, Next Sunday morning is, is a big decision day for some of us. First of all, for those of you that are home around the things of Jesus, maybe you're coming to our church for, for a little while and you've been thinking about maybe making a commitment to Christ. Maybe you wonder, should I get baptized? Should I make this public profession? You know, I know you don't have to, but the scripture says you should. For those of you who have loved our church, you come out once or twice a month, you're intrigued by the things of God, you feel his presence here, you feel the push or the pull of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you feel his presence, you, you think he's calling you. Here's what the Bible teaches. I want you to understand this. If this is you, the Bible teaches that the greatest ob obstacle to you making a really bad decision about your eternity is not that you would make a wrong decision about Jesus, but that you would make none about him. That you would make no decision about Jesus at all. That you would stay hanging around the edges or putting off making a real decision to later. Because understand, this is the historic reaction to Jesus Christ. Rarely, this is the chief weapon of the enemy of your soul. This is his number one trick. Very few people in the history of mankind have greeted Jesus with an outright rebuke or a denial. But it has been the common reaction of man to put him off until I'm fully ready or when the time is right. You see this over and over again in the scriptures, but we read right through it because the stories are quick and we don't see their power. When Jesus walked the earth, things were no different. Lots of people hung around. Lots of people wanted something from him. In fact, many promised that they would follow him anywhere. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said to them, look, you don't understand. I don't even have a place to lay my head. And right after he said that, there's a young man on the street in, 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 in um, I guess it's Luke. I was screwing this up before. I think I was saying Matthew. I think it's in Luke. Um, here's what Jesus said. Right after that, he says to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first, first, mm, first, let me go and bury my dad. Now, I know you might read that and go, well, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. Jesus, can you maybe let the guy bury his dad? But this is not him saying, hey, my dad's over at Lieber, passed away last week, we're going to have a service tomorrow, let me just tidy this up and I'll, I'll be there. That's likely not what was going on here. What he was likely saying was, look, I am the son, I'm the oldest son, and I have a responsibility to stay with my dad until he dies. 
And when he dies, as the oldest son, see, I get the lion's share of the family inheritance. Now, I'm going to come, Jesus. I am. I'm going to come. I'm going to be right there. But just let me get things squared away here first. Just let me get myself set up here first. Just let me get enough money so that I'm secure here first. Let me make sure I get this set up so I have enough safety here first. Jesus, once, see, once I take care of my dad, then I'm going to have you know, people in town. I'll get some of his stuff, and they'll say, well, I'm a good guy, and I'm a success because I have these things. Maybe, Jesus, just let me get the significance that I need out of this first. And then once that happens, then, Jesus, I'm right there. Have you ever said that? I have. I'll be there soon, but first. I was at a prayer meeting with a friend, and he was saying, sharing with the guys about how he felt that God was calling him into ministry with his life. And I said, so what are you going to do? He said, as soon as I get enough money, I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get into full-time ministry. And I looked at him, and I said, you will never do that. It's been 20 years since I told him that. You know what he's doing today? The exact same thing he was doing 20 years ago. See, if and when, I mean, it just never happens. So here's what Jesus said to that young man. Decision point moment. Verse 60, he said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, this was Jesus hearkening back to what we said two weeks ago when he was trying to teach people. Look, you don't understand. Cats give births to cats. Birds give birth to birds. Pigs give birth to piglets. Human beings give birth to dead human beings. Spiritually dead. Spiritually broken. Spiritually not connected to the only source of life there is, which is Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to him, what are you doing? I'm giving you, I'm speaking to you of the things of life. And you want to go back and deal with the dead. You don't understand what you've been offered. Very next verse, very next decision point, right away, another guy, in fact, the scripture says, still another one, said, I'll follow you, but, but first, but first, mm, coming, but first, let me just go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, nobody who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is going to be fit for the service in the kingdom of God. I will, but... I will follow you, Jesus, but first, I'll commit to you, Jesus, but first. And see, here's the but first thing. Understand this. This is where your heart is. And my heart was in this place one time. And these but first things are usually good. Okay? The enemy of your soul is not going to say, but first let me go to Atlantic City. Okay? The enemy of your soul is usually going to say, well, you know, there's something more important. You need to do this first, and it's a good thing. But here's the deal. If you're wrestling with a but first... It shows one thing. It shows this. You do not understand what you have been offered. You do not understand what you have been offered. See, I had this moment, uh, and I, I, my butt first moment was pathetic, and it's embarrassing me for to, to share with you as your pastor. And I was 19 years old, so maybe you'll have some grace on me. And I, I, I came to know Jesus through kind of a legalistic mechanism. And so what was taught to me is once I come to Jesus, I mean, it just I can go to heaven, but life is going to suck now or stink now. Excuse me. Um, and so I'm 19 going, well, who wants to do that? And I remember I was at Rutgers in, uh, in college, and I was at a party in a dorm room, and the Holy Spirit was just, just saying, you need to come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. And I wound up in, a, in Hardenburg Hall in, in, in the stairwell just crying. Because I kept going, but first, but first, but first, oh, Jesus, you don't understand. I'm at college. I waited for this all these years. There's a lot of hot girls here, Jesus. But first, let me just, you know, but first, Jesus, there's a frat party next week. But first, Jesus, you know, I, I'm popular here. I, I got some friends. You know, they're going to think I'm weird. But, but first, let me. I didn't understand what I was being offered. I thought it was being offered like this legalistic bag to carry around. That wasn't what I was given. If you have a I will, Jesus, but first attitude, it's because, like me, you didn't understand what was being offered to you. You thought there might be something better, and you didn't want to risk it. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13. He strings these two things together. They're brilliant. Jesus says, Let me, uh, can I explain to you what I'm offering you? He says, the kingdom of heaven, the offer I'm giving to you, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again because he wanted to make sure he didn't lose it. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought the field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven, let me explain it to you again. It's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had when he bought it. Do you understand what you've been offered? Because when you do, you would never say, but, 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 for, but Jesus, wait. But tomorrow, let me just, if I could only. Did you guys hear there was a guy in uh, Jersey this week that took a scratch off and he won a million bucks in a scratch off game? Right? That's pretty cool. I mean, imagine you go to 7-Eleven, you get a you know, cup of coffee, a buttered roll, and a million-dollar scratch-off. Now, let me ask you a question. You imagine him going home with that scratch-off, maybe sitting in his car, maybe sitting on, sitting on his couch, and he, he scratches it off, and he sees he won a million bucks. Do you think his reaction was, you know what, that's pretty cool. Um, let me do this. I'm going to go back to work and finish things up. Make sure that, you know... I don't really want to walk away from that 401k contribution, so I got to make sure I got that squared away. Um, shoot, there's some hot girls that I'd really like to get with first. So I, I don't really want to, you know, I'm a lottery a hold. And my friends are partying tonight, so maybe I'll go down and redeem the ticket tomorrow. See, those thoughts never ran through his mind. They never, I guarantee you, they never once entered his mind. Because what he had won what he had inherited, even though really he didn't do anything to earn it, the gift that he had been given so outweighed everything else and so positively impacted every other area of his life that he runs to the lottery to office to get the ticket. Because, church, hear me on this now, okay? Now, I don't talk like this a lot, and I'll tell you why. Because, you need to understand, because if he delayed with that lottery ticket, who knows what might have happened? If he delayed with that lottery ticket, who knows what might have happened? And so here's the reality. The greatest deception and lie that will ever be told to you about Jesus Christ is the same one told you about being a dad or about getting it right with your dad, that there's always tomorrow. The writer of the book of Hebrews, they're not certain who it is. Most people think it was the Apostle Paul. He said this. He said, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another. This is what we do. This is why we gather. This is why you need to come to church. It's not just for you. It's for each other. Each other. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Why? Why do you need to do that? So that none of you may have your hearts hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Well, what is sin's lie? What does it tell you to do? It tells you to do it tomorrow. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice... Don't harden your hearts to it. The Bible says in other places, today is the day of salvation. And I have to share this with you. And I, I'm not a fire and brimstone guy, all right? You never hear me talking fire and brimstone because I don't believe that that's the right way to bring people to understand God. I think it creates in them an overarching fear of God. And the scripture actually teaches it is the kindness of God that draws us towards him. Okay? But you do need to hear this. I would be a bad pastor if I didn't share this with you. The Bible does teach over and over that we are fallen, that we are not connected to the eternal source of life that is Jesus Christ, and that there is a danger in procrastination of not coming to a decision point with Jesus. It teaches about this a lot. Because this is the reaction that, gets, that most people give to Jesus. I like it. I'll think about it. Jesus tells a story. It's kind of a weird story. In Matthew, he says, he says, God's kingdom, this offer, is kind of like ten young virgins who took oil lamps and they went out to greet the bridegroom. And five were silly and five were smart. And the, the silly virgins uh, took the lamps, but no extra oil. And the smart virgins took the jars of oil to feed their lamps. Now, the bridegroom didn't show up when they expected him, and they fell asleep. All right, now, if you're not familiar with how the, the Scripture tells a lot of these stories, Jesus in the Bible is almost always pictured as the bridegroom. Go, and this is what a Jewish groom would do. He'd go home to his father's house, prepare a place for his bride, come back together. And so that's what's going on in this story, okay? And so you have Jesus who's the bridegroom, and the people, in a sense, in the church that are hanging around the church are these ten virgins. In other versions, they call them bridesmaids. And you notice now, what's interesting is they all fall asleep. Because the bridegroom was gone a really long time. Now, Jesus has been gone a long time. I get that. And I get even that the most committed of us sometimes, you know, go on with our lives. And we're dealing with our lives. This is not a story about, like, just sitting in your house, hunkering down so that you don't sin in case Jesus comes back. 
My mother-in-law was brought up in a, a very religious environment, a stricter environment, and she's never been to the movies. And I said to her, Mom, why haven't you, there's good movies. Like, why haven't you gone to The Passion of the Christ? Why don't you go see The Passion of the Christ? And she said, because I was always told, don't get caught in a movie theater if Jesus comes back. Right? But that was the thought process. And so the scripture is saying, this is not about that kind of, of thing. This is not about behavior, but it's about belief and it's about preparation. Because watch what happens. In the middle of the night, somebody yelled, he's here, the bridegroom is here, go out and greet him. Well, the ten virgins got up, they woke up, they, 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 they said, okay, this is the time. And the silly virgins said to the smart ones, that's kind of a funny thing to say, the silly virgins. Anyway, the silly virgins said to the smart ones, our lamps are going out, lend us some of your oil. And they answered, well, there might not be enough to go around, so go buy your own. They did. But while they were out buying oil, catch the butt. But Jesus, but as soon as I, but while they were out buying oil, while they were out saying, you know what, I got to get my job right, I got to get my career right, I got to get with the girls, I got to have the parties, I got to jack up the savings, I got to get that last vacation, I got to buy that house, I got to live my life. Maybe if I could just, you know, it'd be ideal would be to like a three-month cancer thing where maybe I could just kind of deal with Jesus on that last fine day, that last day, maybe that would be the way that it would work. But while they were out buying the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And when everyone who was there to greet him had gone into the wedding feast, the door was locked. And so much later, these other virgins, the silly ones, showed up and knocked on the door saying, Master, we're here. Jesus, I'm ready now. Jesus, I buried my dad. Jesus, I said goodbye to my family. Jesus, I, I've done all the things I wanted to do. I think I'm ready now. I'm not too worried about what people are going to think. Let me in. And he answered, Do I know you? I don't think I know you. So stay alert. You have no idea when he might arrive. See, the, the greatest threat you have to making the right decision about Jesus Christ is that you make no decision about Jesus Christ, thinking that you can just put it off till tomorrow. I'm just going to keep thinking about this. I did this with my kids, and they're gone. Here's the truth, and I know we don't like to hear it. The truth is that when it comes to the stumbling block called Jesus Christ for you and for me, at a time that we don't know, here's the thing. I do know it's going to be sometime in the next 40, 50, 60 years. I mean, people keep writing to me about, oh, you know, when do you think the, the end time's coming? I said, well, for me, I know it's coming sometime in the next 40 to 60. Right? So at a time that I might not know, it might be tomorrow, it might be in the parking lot after this, or it might be 40 years to now, there will be a time when my tomorrows will run out. And thus the urgency from Scripture, choose life while you still can. Because otherwise you will die in your flesh. You will die just the way you were born, broken and separated from God. Not of his choice, not of his will, but of our own. Now, if you haven't made that commitment, you've been hanging around the edges of Jesus, kind of hoping he'd kind of help you in life, but not really all that interesting in making a real commitment to him. Then right now, okay, I know what's happening in your heart. I can hear what's happening in your heart. Your dying flesh is screaming. Because this is the story of all ages. Your dying flesh is screaming. Just get through the service. Just get through the service. You can think about this outside. Don't worry about this that much. We can talk about it later. I know he's all emotional up there. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, he teaches apologetics in a narrative form. I don't know if you've read it, the plot and characters he uses address deep theological issues, primarily those with temptation and resistance to it. And so the story takes the form of a series of letters from a, a senior demon called Screwtape. It's about what goes on in the spiritual realm uh, as we move towards God. And so there's this senior demon called Screwtape, and he's addressing, he's writing letters to his nephew Wormwood, who is a junior tempter. And the uncle's uh, mentorship pertains to his nephew's responsibility in securing the damnation of a British man known as the patient. In the first screw tape letter, I'm going to conclude with this, get you out of here. In the first screw tape letter, Lewis nails our battle with the danger of tomorrow and how it is the chief tool of the enemy of your soul. One paragraph, Wormwood writes to his nephew, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, 
He used to go to the British Museum and read, and one day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. He calls God the enemy. So he says, the enemy, God, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. And before I knew where I, before I, knew where I was, I saw my 20 years of demonic hard work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I would have been undone. But I wasn't such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had under my best control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. Well, God presumably made the counter-suggestion, you know, never, no one can ever quite overhear what he's saying to them, that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said, quite, it is more important than lunch. In fact, it's much too important to tackle at the end of the morning... The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had, added, I had added, quote, much better to come back after lunch and go out with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might have come into his head when he was shut up and alone in his books, a healthy dose of quote-unquote real life was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. And this demon goes on to say, he is now safe in our father's house. The greatest lie to your soul is that you don't need to make a decision about Jesus Christ you can make a decision about Jesus Christ tomorrow. So that's, my, that's just my truth. That's just the truth of the scripture. And so as we approach next week, band, come up. As we approach next week, if you, have, if you have just not made, come to that place, but you're close. If you're hearing this this morning and you're hearing that voice going, don't do this, don't do this, where do you think that voice is coming from? If you've been a follower of Jesus, but you haven't, you haven't, Succumb to the demand of making a public confession of Jesus through baptism. Next Sunday's your day. If you've been hanging around thinking about, I might want to make a commitment to this one true God. Next Sunday's your day. And I'll, I'll let you dads go with this. If you've been thinking about there's something you should be doing with your kids or something you should be saying to your dad, this Sunday is the day. Let's stand and close the worship.